Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning everyone, you're tuned to Community Radio 3CR, time is just after 7.30 and of course you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy and we have to say a very, very good morning to Simon Rickard. Morning Simon. Good morning Pam. Ah, long time no see, it's been but a while, it's great hasn't it? to have you back. Yeah, thank you, it's <laughs> lovely to be here too. Oh, and I presume you've been... Loads busy, particularly out in your own garden, which is just I have, yeah. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind. Yeah, I have been busy in my own garden. Um, Gardening Australia came and filmed a couple of weeks ago. Oh, did they? Uh, yeah, again? unexpectedly, actually. Oh, okay. Um, they gave me a ring at five o'clock on the Monday evening saying, what are you doing on Wednesday? <laughs> so I spent all the I'm Tuesday. out pulling weeds in a hurry. <laughs> exactly, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, it was a bit unexpected, another story they had fell over, but it was really lovely to have Millie on site with me. And, right. Um, yeah, they filmed the garden in all its summer glory this time. That's good, because last time it was autumn, wasn't it? Uh, winter, winter, actually, middle actually of winter. winter. That's right. right. So it'll be interesting for viewers to see the, the contrasts. And that show will be put out in about two months, around about two months. Okay. I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to announce it here when it comes Oh, yeah, out. absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I'll keep my eye on it. That's great. Mm, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do you find, like some of our other listeners who... Uh, um, our other presenters who open their gardens mm. find that it's the one time that it forces them to be disciplined and to and to maintain their garden yeah, in a hurry. It's not a bad point. Actually, I, I see it as a good thing because it gives you a deadline to work towards. And, you know, otherwise you can just get up in the morning and think, oh, you know, there's those weeds and I'll deal with they them. They can a bit. wait tomorrow. Exactly, yeah. that's right. But if you've got a deadline, it gives you something to wa- work towards. True. And especially if you have um, several months, you know, leading up to an event, to an open garden or whatever, it, it really means that you can... Uh, hone your skills while you, you, you time everything so that it looks perfect on a particular day. Mm. So I, I really enjoy that challenge. I, I enjoy working to a deadline. I right. think it's a much, for me, it's a more rewarding way to garden than just get up and think, what am I going to do today? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, we've, been, we've all been bemoaning this crazy summer. Mm-hmm. How have you found mm. it? Oh, it's been amazing, hasn't it? You know, we had February weather back in December. Yes. And then after the Indian Ocean dipole went back to neutral, all of a sudden we had December weather in February. You know, we had <laughs> rain and it's been, it, it's funny. December was so hot up my way. Mm. Normally, on average where I live, I get about three days a year above 30 degrees because okay. I'm quite high in altitude. Yep. But this year it was just, you know, day after day after day of, of the high 30s, which is very, very unusual for us. Mm. And, um, then after that Indian Ocean dipole broke down in um, sort of mid-January, all of a sudden it was, you know, 15 degrees Celsius every day. We've had rain. It's, everything's green. And I have to say the, I live near the Wombat State Forest and all of the gum trees, especially the messmates, are in spectacular blossom at the moment. And the last time they, they bloomed like this was after... I think it was 2009, we had, you know, we had drought, we had Black Saturday yes. in 2009, yes. and then the following summer was quite wet, 
and um, they bloom spectacularly them too. So I think they really respond to these patterns of dry, uh, you know, a dry season followed by a very wet summer. Mm. So all of the forest at the moment is full of beehives. All the bee people are bringing in their hives and the trees are abuzz with, with bees. It's really beautiful. That's great. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's a nice contrast from six weeks ago when it was, you know, we all thought we'd die. So from <laughs> with the horrible fires and so dry and... Yeah, it's been a very taxing time, I think, for everyone in in Australia. Oh, it certainly has Mm, been, and mm, people are really suffering, mm, yeah, mm, for sure. Did you get any of that hail that we got down here in Melbourne? No, luckily I didn't get any hail. Um, My my friends in Canberra got it too, because it worked its way up to Canberra. They had huge hail. Of course, there was a lot of damage in Canberra, including the the glass houses at the CSIRO uh, plant, the plant um, research division, where they work on new crops. So all of the glass houses there were smashed to bits oh, and uh, some of the crops that they had growing in there were um, you know the, the 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 result of two three four five years worth of breeding and all damaged exactly oh, that's right so the gosh. poor plant scientists who da- do that you know yes. back to square one yes. with their breeding work Breed, breeding crop varieties to withstand things like you, you know heat and drought yes and <laughs> and flood and so forth so but not hail no exactly that's right <laughs> Maybe there's got to be a new breed of plants now. Yeah, hail-proof. That'd be good, wouldn't it? (laughs) Oh, goodness me. Yeah, of course, the other thing is that here in Melbourne, Mm. um, we've all got wonderful, big... Green tomatoes, and I don't know if they're going to ever colour up. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Once again, that's the norm for me, being high up and in this cool. Yes, it would be. Yeah, I, I very rarely get tomatoes. One year I grew 40 kilos of uh, green tomatoes. So th- these days I only grow four plants, okay. and I pinch out all the side shoots so they don't get big and bushy because that helps to ripen the fruit. Yep. And if I'm really lucky, I will get um, some tomatoes in March. I just got my first one yesterday. Oh, so well done. One day early of March. <laughs> Climate change is working in my favour, finally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's frustrating, isn't it, growing all the tomatoes and then they don't ripen? Oh, gosh, I'll say yes. Mm. I, think, I think I'll be bringing out the green tomato pickle or chutney or... <laughs> Imposing it on all your friends for yeah, Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. I might <laughs> have, have to read out a recipe or two yeah, over the airwaves. <laughs> Oh, so it's been good. So, I mean, what I've been interested in this year in my garden is is looking at heat-tolerant plants because, you know, I I wrote about this in my first book that all the British garden literature talks about plant hardiness in terms of how much cold a plant can take. Mm. This plant's hardy to minus 10 degrees. This plant's hardy to minus 15 degrees. That's just not a problem for us at all. For us, the limiting factor on plant growth in Australia is, is heat. And that's because um, after a certain, uh, something in the, in the low 30s, um, plants' metabolic processes shut down. All the chemical interactions that are happening in their cells uh, happen at a slower rate after a certain temperature range, within a certain temperature yep, range, yep. or outside a certain temperature range. And so plants become dormant, um, you know, once the temperature gets to the high 30s. And some plants cope with that better than others. And so that's what I've been really keeping an eye on in my garden this year. What copes well with heat? What looks good in heat? What stresses beautifully? And what stresses in, a, in an ugly way? And so there's, I can tell you, a lot of editing going on in my garden at the moment. Anything that looked sad over summer, yes. um, even if it didn't die, if it looks sad, it's Coming out because I don't want to look at sad plants. In, no, fair in enough. Hot fair weather. enough. Yeah. But I, I would have thought that um, basically most of your plantings were fairly 
well, what we call drought-tolerant yes. plants. Yes. Mm. Uh, but some of those were really stressed with Absolutely. straight heat. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Interesting, and isn't I it? think, well, I think there are, there's a difference between drought tolerance and heat tolerance. That's right. And you see that a lot with New Zealand plants. You know, New Zealand plants can often be, especially ones from the east coast of the South Island, where which is quite dry, can be quite drought hardy. They don't mind dry, but they don't like heat. And the New Zealand flax, the Formium Tenax, mm. is a real example of that. You know, it's sold all the time in nurseries as a drought-tolerant plant, which it is. It tolerates drought, but it really hates heat. And um, it, it bur- the leaves burn and they bleach, so it doesn't look beautiful. Whereas something like um, oh, some some of the agaves, you know, even when they're heat stressed, the foliage um, it, it goes a beautiful orange colour. So agave filifera um, goes a beautiful orange colour. That's how it shows its stress. But apart from that, it still looks lovely. Mm. So I think it's really important, and, and that's why I brought in, which I guess we'll talk about later, we some will. of these perennials that, yeah, I've discovered are really, really heat tolerant. working well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to get to some community announcements because there are still things taking place. Um, and uh, a couple of them are notices for today. So if you haven't got any plans... Uh, we've got a few things to suggest for you. Uh, first up uh, today, and it's a one day only, is the uh, Heritage Fruit Tree Festival. Now this takes place uh, down at uh, uh, at uh, Werribee Park, down at the uh, Heritage uh, uh, Orchard there. Now it's opening 10am this morning, running through until 3 o'clock this afternoon. You uh, enter uh, via Gate 5, which is near Shadowfax Winery, and you take the K Road uh, there. Now, they're going to have uh, established fruit trees, uh, scion for grafting. There'll be makers and market stalls. There'll be food stalls. There'll be orchard tours and talks, and uh, lots and lots happening. Now, they do encourage you, if you'd like to take a picnic in and settle for the day, uh, there's going to be live music from 10.30. Uh, the Orchard Tours are taking place at 11am and 1pm. Uh, demonstrations in the Blacksmith's Shed. Uh, talks with the Werribee's uh, beekeepers. Uh, Friends of Werribee will be in period costume. Wow, there'll be a ceramics display. All day grafting demonstrations in the stables. All day tree and scion sales. Food and drinks available. Uh, you can BYO your reusable cups and water bottle. And uh, lots, absolutely lots happening uh, all today. So, uh, as I said, the directions for that one, you enter via Gate 5, K Road, Werribee South. Uh, if you're bringing your car, it is gold coin donation for parking. And uh, they do remind you to BYO bags for any purchases you make. Okay, uh, now also um, coming up today is the second day of Diggers Harvest Festival down at uh, 108 Latrobe Parade in Dramana there. And uh, they have got on kitchen garden tours at 10 o'clock, uh, the Heronswood uh, Garden Tours 11 and 2. There'll be heirloom tomato taste testing 11 and 2. There'll be mini workshops, tips and tricks to growing garlic at 11.30, another one on berries for your backyard at 1.30, and another one on cut flowers, garden to vase. You can enjoy lunch on the magnificent pool lawn 
there'll be children's garden activities today only, 11 through till 2. And you can also visit the, uh, the Heronswood uh, Gallery there. So it's open 9am, running through until 5 o'clock today. Now, if you're a member of the Diggers Club or uh, for children under 16 years, it's free entry. For other visitors, $10 entry for that one. Uh, now, also on today is the second uh, day of Garden Opens for Open Gardens Victoria. Uh, and this is um, <coughs> Karen's Garden, which is a uh, park-like uh, garden in Brighton. Uh, the address, if I can find it somewhere, it seems to have disappeared. Um, ah, here we go. The address is 9 uh, Brandon Close in Brighton. It's open from 10 o'clock this morning through till 4.30 this afternoon. Entry is $8. <clears throat> Children under 18 are free. And uh, it has beautiful mature trees such as ginkgo, jacaranda, uh, as I said, it's a park-like garden with a very tranquil atmosphere, uh, all carefully planted out by uh, Karen. Uh, there's a large free-form shaded pond, which adds to the relaxed atmosphere, lots of water plants, uh, sculptures add interest to throughout the garden. So, as I say, that's all happening today, 10 o'clock through until 4.30 p.m. Now, a couple of things coming up. Uh, firstly, uh, Fernie Creek Horticultural Society have got their plant collector sale coming up now. This is next weekend, 7th and 8th of March. Uh, they'll have uh, at least 25-plus vendors. Um, some are going to be new. They'll be selling bulbs, perennial shrubs of all sizes, trees. Uh, most of the sales area will be out on the lawn in Marquise, but some of the smaller sellers will be in the hall, along with some static displays, books, floral paintings, etc. And some of the uh, vendors will be sending garden art and garden tools. Now, the event will open from 10 till 4 on both days. Entry remains at $5, with children under 14 free. There'll be plenty of food uh, put on by the Fernie Creek ladies, as well as a coffee cart. And parking is within the garden, and there are some disability parking uh, spots as well. And, of course, you're always welcome to bring along a picnic and have a picnic in the garden. Now, uh, the gardens are located at 100 Hilton Road East in Sassafras there. So that's next weekend, uh, 7th and 8th of March. Also on 7th and 8th of March, next weekend, um, uh, <clears throat> we have uh, uh, Cloud Hill have got uh, their productions of Twelfth Night taking place. This is with OZAC. Uh Now, this is an annual event. Um, OZAC, uh put on a Shakespearean play at this time of the year. Uh, as I say, this year it will be Twelfth Night, both Saturday and Sunday next weekend, 5 o'clock through till about 8 o'clock. Uh, now, you can book online, uh, just uh, type in Cloud Hill and it will all come up, or you can call uh, them on 97511009. And uh, uh, Jeremy does recommend you arrive 5 to 5.30. You can bring a picnic again, uh, bring some low fold-up chairs, 
uh, maybe a bit of warm clothing as the night might get a bit chilly and uh, and sit back and relax. And if you've got any um, teenagers who are studying Twelfth Night, a wonderful uh, chance to see a production of that uh, to help with their studies. Okay, another one that I have. Now, this is coming up on the 8th of March. Uh, the Reedsdale Bush Market. Now, again, this is an annual event. Uh, it takes place in the Agnes Mudford Reserve at 2631 Kyneton Reedsdale Road in Reedsdale. Uh, the committee is pleased to announce that the much-loved Bendigo and District Concert Band will again be entertaining crowds. Um, there'll be uh, lots of entertainment, not only music, face painting, animal farm and a jumping castle. Several car and bike clubs will do, be displaying their vehicles on the day and uh, there will also be lots and lots of stalls ranging from local produce including olives, honey, jams, chutneys, preserves, beef jerky, herbs, spices, cake stalls and plants, including rare natives, through to clothing, new, pre-loved and vintage, fishing tackle, tools, furniture. The list goes on and on. Photography, jewellery, glassware, goodness me. So um, make a day of it. It is free entry for this one. Uh, and uh, as I say, if you'd like to uh, make an inquiry about it, you can phone Alwyn. And uh, the number is 0419 513 976. That's 0419 513 976. And that's all taking place Sunday, 8th of March. And uh, that's in the Agnes Mudford Reserve, 2631 Kyneton Reedsdale Road in Reedsdale. Now, just um, a few more that I should mention. Uh, firstly, uh, uh, Burnley um, uh, friends have got some botanical art classes taking place at Burnley. Now, uh, they usually run these each year. It's happening again. They're art classes with Marley Moore. There are four sessions altogether of two and a half hours each. And the focus this year um, the technique is the technique to use uh, the use of Chinese white watercolour as a base for other colours. Now, the surface can be on white paper or coloured paper, and the technique is good to use with dry brush on small subjects with detail. Now, each class will commence with a demonstration and discussion of the specific technique. Now, small class size, beginners are welcome. Uh, the materials that are required are watercolour paints and or watercolour pencils, Chinese white watercolour, not titanium white, but Chinese white, which is PW4, brushes, masking fluid and nib, 100% cotton watercolour, 300 uh, GSM smooth paper. Uh, a colour can be of your choice. You'll need tracing paper and pencils, HB and 2H. Now, they start on March, Wednesday, March the 11th, and then also run on the 18th, the 25th, and April the 1st. Uh, time is 10 a.m., running through till 12.30. Uh, the room will be open from 9.30 uh, for a 10 o'clock start. Now, the cost, if you're a member of the Friends Group, $200. Non-members, 240 the venue is Quad 4 at Burnley Campus, Melbourne, uh, University of Melbourne, 500 Yarra, Yarra Boulevard there in Richmond. 
and the rear car park off FR Smith Drive um, is available for car parking. Our bookings are essential. Uh, if you need to book, you need to phone Maria on 0439 I'll say that again, 0439-041-198. Or you can go to Maria K, all lowercase, at ihug.com.au. Now, there's a minimum of five registrations required for the class to commence. There's a maximum of 10 people for the class. And uh, bookings must be made in full by Wednesday, March the 4th. So that's only in four days' time. So you do need to get on with that one. And uh, when you book, they'll give you all the payment details for that one. Now, uh, just another one. Uh, I will come back to others later, uh, if time permits. But uh, next uh, weekend, 14th and 15th of March, Open Gardens Victoria are going to be opening the stunning English-style Claremont Garden, now, this is at 143 Noble Street, Newtown in Geelong, and proceeds will be supporting the Geelong Animal Welfare Society. Now, in an era when so many historic gardens and homes have been demolished and subdivided, the house and garden at Claremont is a rare gem. It's set on one acre. It's an English-style garden framed by magnificent mature trees with beds of perennial flowers, Rambling pathways, a vegetable and berry garden, stunning Edwardian glass house, orchard and a range of original outhouses and stables. Now it was established in the 1850s, designed by engineer architect Andrew McWilliams in the Italianate style. Um, it's one of the most distinguished homes of its era in Geelong. In 1900, the property was purchased by the Gray family and has continued to be owned and gardened by members of the Gray family ever since. So this is the Gray's 120th year at Claremont. Visitors are welcome to picnic on the generous lawns and enjoy the, enjoy the serenity um, of the garden. There'll be tea, coffee, cakes, jams and chutneys available for purchase at the opening, uh, along with Anne Vale's book on influential garden people. And, as I said, proceeds for the opening will support the Geelong Animal Welfare Society. Now, our good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have once again given us one free double pass. If you'd like to secure that double pass, do give us a call now on 94190155 and that will be posted out to you. So, one free double pass, 9419 0155 to uh, go next weekend to enjoy the gardens of Claremont, which is at 143 Noble Street in Newtown. Okay, there's always lots happening. It's yeah, great. It is. <laughs> Springtime, there's a real flood, and then you think, oh, everything's going to die off. But no, no. Well, you know, in the vegetable garden, we call February the, the second spring because, you know, it's just this little window where the, the day length is about the same as spring and the temperatures are mild enough that you can sow a, you know, you can, you can sow vegetables for winter in that, in that sort of second spring period. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Fantastic. So it's nice that people want to get out and garden. Oh. Absolutely. Once you're a gardener, you're always a gardener. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we should invite, having said that, we should invite our listeners to join us. If you would like to 
ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to have you on board. Do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to Simon. Uh, Otherwise, this morning we have Doug on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat on the outside line to Doug, you can give him a call on 94198377. Pam, I have to tell you, while you were making the announcements, friend of the program, Margot MacDonald, texted me with a photograph of about five kilograms of red tomatoes that she's grown up near Kyneton where she lives. Wow. So maybe you and I are doing something wrong. We must be. We'll have to get in touch with Margot and ask her what to do. did she do that in Kyneton? <laughs> Maybe she's got a glass house. She's got green house. thumbs, that woman. That's oh, I know. That's amazing. <laughs> I know it is, isn't it? I suppose, it, you know, it, it goes to show how localised microclimates can really have a big influence on plant growth. Oh, yes. Because where Margot lives is only a few kilometres from me, but much lower in altitude and on right. the north side of the range. Yes. And so it's just a, a different climate. And but all same. we ever hear from Kyneton is their complaints about the frosts in wintertime. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they get enormous frosts. They do. They get rippers. Yeah. From, from quite an early, you know, stage on. That's right. Um, and there she is growing these amazing... It doesn't seem fair. Does it? Well it done, Margot. It doesn't seem fair. Yeah. <laughs> Big clap, Margot. Well done to you. Goodness me. Oh, so what else is happening around your neck of the woods? I've noticed, um, I did mention this a couple of weeks ago, that um, Kyneton Botanic Gardens have been given a, um, a nice little uh, uh, grant mm-hmm. yes. to, to help with, with them. Absolutely. And they've, uh, in fact, Margot's been instrumental in all of, all of that work. Yeah. Um, and they have just uh, celebrated um, their, it was 120th anniversary, I think, of the wow. Botanical Gardens yes. and the Horticultural Society as well. Fantastic. And so they, they had a little day where I was the MC actually. Okay. And they had uh, entertainment there. They had a, a fantastic storyteller who told the story of the Wardian case, you know, this little glass oh, box yes, that changed yes. the world because, you know, for the first time they could bring crops from overseas back to back to Britain, back to the mother country. These yes. little tender plants that would otherwise get fried by the salt air on a three-month uh, ship voyage uh, could be put in these Wardian cases, like a little glass fish tank, um, and taken back to back to um, Kew Gardens. So we had that storyteller. There was a mu- uh, sorry, a magician. Um, and, uh, you know, there were speeches talking about the history of the gardens. Peter May was there as well. Okay. Uh, another denizen of Kyneton. And it was a really exciting day. So, you know, it's nice that these small regional botanical gardens uh, are still living and thriving. Oh, gosh, yes. Because, of course, many of them were planted out in the 19th century, designed by people like William Guilfoyle, mm. who was the superintendent at the Melbourne Botanical Gardens. And But in those days, in the 19th century, botanical gardens were seen as morally Improving, you know, it was for the benefit of society that they had these things, and um, but the legacy of that today is that we have the most beautiful, big, mature trees, and often specimens of very rare and unusual That's trees right. too. Because Guilfoyle was in, instrumental in sending out a lot of these trees, wasn't he, to all over, Absolutely. all over Australia? Yep. Yes. So Kyneton Botanical Gardens, for example, has got fa- a magnificent cork oak with, you know, full, fully grown cork oak with thick corky bark. It's got uh, a very rare oak from the Himalayas, which name I forget, but it's got foliage with a lovely silver underside on mm. the leaf. Um, and yeah, just, oh, it's also got the, the largest, um, Chilean wine palm in Victoria, the Jubea chilensis, which is nearly extinct in the wild now. Wow. But they have the biggest one in Victoria, uh, at, at Cotton Botanic Gardens. So yeah. worth a look. 
Yes, mm. absolutely. And and the crazy part was that is that when these as these botanical gardens were emerging, mm. um, people had such strange ideas as to what should go into them. Yeah. We had miniature zoos, for instance, in the yep, middle of them. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Zoological gardens, yes, that's right. Yes, yes, and all sorts of weird and wonderful yeah. things. And gradually we've become more true to the whole botanical mm. concept of what a botanical garden should be, Yes, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, botanical gardens started out as medicinal gardens in monasteries mm. and uh, plants were, were grouped according to um, fam- you know, their families or you know, all the members of the Mint family here, all the mem- members of the Solanaceae family here, um, and uh, that, that's how they began. And you see this still at places like, um, you know, they, they've retained remnants of that at Kew Gardens, which was an 18th century garden, or uh, Leiden Horticultural Gardens, uh, Botanical Gardens, rather, in Leiden in the Netherlands, which um, was where tulips were first introduced to Holland. It still, you know, harkens back to those days when it was a Basically, a medicinal garden or mm. e- economical plants, I should yes, say. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And so, I suppose when when white settlement first occurred in the Australian continent, then that they wanted to find out what, you know, what economical plants from other parts of the British Empire could be grown here from the from the hot countries. Yeah. You know, <laughs> could be grown here in Australia. Yes. So, so yeah, a very different approach to how we think of them today, which okay. is you know, about, well, classification and preservation of native species and of rare species and so forth. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. But a lot of fantastic work going on, as I say, with, with, with classification, with, with um, preserving um, family groupings of plants, mm. you know. It's, 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 it's Absolutely. really yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. And Tim Entwistle, of course, the um, curator of the Botanical Gardens here in Melbourne, is a fantastic advocate for all of that sort of work. He's mm. such an enthralling speaker and so knowledgeable. Um, and his background's actually in algae, which are not even plants, you know, yeah. these little single-celled organisms. But, um, yeah. He's the most engaging speaker. So if people get a chance to hear Tim Entwistle speak, and you can hear him on Radio National, actually, you can. frequently. Yes, you can. You know, really interesting guy. Yeah, mm. fantastic. Okay, let's have a chat about some of these plants that, sure. that you've found have really succeeded over the over the hot. Sure. Well, I, I brought in some, um, uh, some perennial... Well, I brought in plants from my ornamental garden and some plants from my food garden today. So I have some perennials and I have some pears. All the plants that begin with P. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oops, that pear nearly rolled off the the table there. Um, Yeah, so perennials here, which uh, I found have stood up to the heat really well. Um, And some of those are pretty unsurprising, but some of them are quite surprising as well. So some of the unsurprising ones are are things like uh, sedums. And um, sedum autumn joy, uh, well, actually, they're not sedums anymore, Pam. They're now called hylotelephiums. Oh, everything keeps changing. <laughs> it's so hard to keep up with it all. I know, I know exactly. <laughs> so hylotelephium uh, autumn joy or sedum autumn joy is really well known. But I grow this variety here as well um, called purple emperor. And it has very, very dark purple foliage, like a, like a black grape covered with a slightly grey blue. It is bloom. very dark, isn't it? It is, yeah. Wow. And the undersides are sort of, um, what colour would you call that, sort of 
oh. verdigris, steel, yes. steel blue yes. colour. Yes. So you know, very it, striking plant. It is very aptly named, I would say, because it, it's a strong spire of, of leaves. And well, that's a good observation because it's quite an upright variety. You know, some of the the taller sedums like Matrona can be quite floppy, yes. especially if they get too much extra water. But this variety is pretty well self-supporting because it's a bit shorter, and this beautiful purple black foliage um, is very imposing in in the perennial garden. Mm. You know, a blob of black, um, and especially if you put it next to something grey or silver. I was going to say a silver leaf next to it would be perfect. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Artemisias or something like that, Wormwoods. But I grow mine with um, this little plant here, which is one of my favourite perennials. And it kind of looks nothing in a pot, but when you see a clump of it in the ground, it's really beautiful. And this is a verbena. It's a a verbena rigida. And it it comes from uh, Paraguay and southern Brazil, and it looks the same every day of the of the growing season. It, it comes up in spring, goes dormant in winter, but comes right. up in spring and starts flowering, and it flowers right through from spring till autumn. And it never has a leaf out of place. It's always covered in flowers. It never bats an eyelid at heat or dry or anything. Wow. And it's only um, about uh, 15 inches tall, about 45 centimetres tall. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a compact little thing that everyone can fit in their garden. It grows well in pots too. Um, the roots are very tolerant of, of heat, you know, hot pots. Yes, right. Um, so that's verbena rigida. And the, the wild variety is a beautiful royal purple, but the one I have here is verbena rigida Polaris and Polaris has got this. How would you describe that colour? That really pale mauve. Oh, or it something? is. It is. Yes, but the 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 centre of it is darker. Mm-hmm. Um, to really give it an accent of that 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 mauve sort of shading, mm. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's like they it's look beautiful. like heliotrope flowers or something. If you remember the old heliotropes, they do. And I. Bet you that's bee attracting, is it? Oh yeah, the bees love it. They would love it. Yep, yep. In fact, bees love all of these these sorts of blues and and mauvey colours because bees can only see in a certain colour range. Okay. And so they're attracted to, um, you know, mauves, blues, pinks and so forth. Whereas this this little colour here, I've got a plant that's got bright orange-red tubular flowers, and that's designed for bird to attract birds because um, nectar-feeding birds like honeyeaters in Australia or sunbirds in South Africa or hummingbirds, where this plant comes from in uh, the Americas, are attracted to reds and oranges. So think about our grevilleas here in Australia yes. have the you know red tubular flowers. Yes. Um, uh, proteas in South Africa have got these tubular red flowers or leucodendrons. Mm. And this is a uh, what they call a Californian fuchsia or Zauschneria. Actually, it's not a Zauschneria anymore; it's an Epilobium. So, <laughs> but Zauschneria it still is in the trade. A, a Californian fuchsia, and the flowers are really the most bright shade of orange red. It's a it's a very bright in your face colour. Yes, and you is. know, I, I sometimes I meet people who who say, "Oh, I only have pastel colours in my garden," as if it's you know as a sort of sign of bad taste to have non-pastel colours in your garden. And I just think, well, great, more for me, because any plant that is as floriferous as this and looks as happy in the heat of of March is is okay by me. And that March is when this starts flowering and goes right, right through until the end of May. Okay, Ma- March to that, me. That's an interesting flowering. Period, isn't it? Is, it is, yes, it is. Because by March, you, you're basically losing a lot of the flowers in your garden. Exactly. And, and to go through until May, where we're getting some really cold weather, yep. 
but that's still doing its its thing. Yeah, that's right. March um, is the most difficult month in my garden, actually, because you know all the things that have looked beautiful right through summer. By the time they get to March, they're all heat stunned, they're all fagged out, yes. and they all just sort of ugh, have a have a sigh and collect themselves, and then go on doing their thing in, when autumn proper arrives. But March can look very arid and very you know tired in the garden. So mm. as you say, something that starts flowering in March is a real benefit. Yeah. Yes, fantastic. Um, I might just go to we've we've had um. A caller uh, from the outside line ring in. Uh, George has phoned. Uh, he had a grillvillia that died. He cannot remember the name of it, but he would like to get it again. So here's the challenge. Uh, it basically uh, was two metres high. It had white flowers. Uh, defining features is that the flowers were cinnamon-scented. Oh, uh, wow. Can we identify it? Or do we know the name of a, a native plant grower who could help? Mm. Well, uh, I don't know where George lives. Um, I instantly think about uh, going up to Karanga. Karanga, yeah, exactly. Um, because uh, if anyone's going to be able yep. to help identify... I was going uh, to say the same thing, Pam. Yes. Or wait until the Elliots come in again and ask the Elliots. They're sh- <laughs> they probably bred it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, any thoughts? I was going to say the same thing. Um, ring a specialist native nursery and ask yep. them, and, and Karanga would be my first port of call too. Yeah, what a pity you didn't take a photo, George, mm. at the time when it was in full flight. Cinnamon scented sounds nice. It does sound nice, doesn't mm. it? Yeah, but I would definitely recommend, look, even give them a call. If mm. you can't get up there easily, give them a call, and I'm sure uh, they might be able to point you in the right direction. They'll at least be able to um, narrow it down, narrow it down mm. to a... a, a Small range of white-flowered, because how many white-flowered grevilleas are there? I wonder. I don't recall terribly many at all, to be quite I mean, honest. The other thing you could do would be to Google it. Just Google grevillea, white flowers, white flowers. cinnamon scent. Yes, um, because and see what happens. How many see can there be? <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I'm thinking, because I, I really can't place many at all. No, I've got something uh, cinnamon-scented in my garden at the moment, actually, but it's not a grevillea. It's okay. uh, a Japanese long yam. Ah. which is a root vegetable from Japan right. um, called uh, nagaimo in Japanese, which means long potato. Okay. And it's got very long roots, a metre long. Wow. And they look sort of like uh, like a skinny baseball bat. Right. And they have a texture, very, very crisp, like a like a fresh cucumber. You can just snap them in half. Yeah. Um, but inside it, it's this weird combination of crisp and slimy at the same time. I know. <laughs> I was I was really with you until you said slimy. slimy. <laughs> it's look it's it's a it's a textural ingredient that the Japanese yep. really love because it is it's a unique combination. It, it's as crisp as a cucumber, but or a water chestnut that sort of yes, texture. Yeah, that texture. But yep. slimy like okra or something like that. And one of the things they do with it in Japan is is grate it. So they make or, what they call oroshi. They grate it on a grater to make this kind of slimy. Sauce? Yeah, it's like a sauce. And then you you can serve that with different kinds of, you know, barbecued meats or or just put condiments in it and slurp it out of the bowl like that. So they would use that as per, say, a pickled vegetable on the side? Yes, it's also pickled and it's beautiful when it's pickled with yuzu. Okay. I can't even describe the texture. It's like the lightest, crispest um, water chestnut you've ever had. There's almost nothing to it. 
So, but anyway, it grows on a vine. It's a kind of, it's a yam. It's a yes. dioscoria. Okay. And so it's got heart-shaped glossy leaves. It's a herbaceous vine, which means it goes to sleep in winter and then re-emerges in spring. And at this time of year, it's about three metres tall and it has tiny little flowers, only a millimetre across, pale yellow, but the most beautiful cinnamon scent. Wow. Re- just exactly like yeah. cinnamon. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's in my veggie garden. And every, I, I have to admit, I haven't harvested it because every year I go to harvest, I think oh, I can't be, can't be bothered getting this shovel out. You know? <laughs> that's a big, long dig. It is, yeah. It's a long dig. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, good heavens. Is it ever cooked or only ever eaten raw? Oh, no, cooked and eaten raw and pickled. So you, you could bake it? How would you cook it? I don't it? know. I think it would disappear if you baked it. I think okay. there'd be nothing, there'd be be nothing to it. Okay, yes. <laughs> But I've, I've definitely had it simmered in stock and uh, pickled uh, in, uh, in salt and uh, with yuzu, which is a Japanese citrus. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I've had two, uh, two people now mention that they think it might be Grevillea curvilloba. Okay. Grevillea curvilloba, we think. Yes. Great. So, there we go. That, that, that's, that's going to at least point George in the right direction. Yes. Did you get that, George? Yes. Grevillea curvilloba. But uh, we'll see if we can check up on that. I'm going to Google that. All right, and we'll see what we can find out. But, yeah, an interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I know that one. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm Googling it now. It looks very, very familiar. I can't say I've ever bothered to smell it. It's funny. You can get a surprise. You know, you, sometimes you don't bother to smell plants, and then you smell them and think, oh, I didn't realise that had a smell. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess if, you, if you didn't brush it as you walk past or something, mm. the smell may not be that dominant. And mm, so no, you may not realise. Yeah. Well, a lot of, I mean, a lot go. of the grevilleas. And it's interesting because this grevillea looks like it's designed to be pollinated by insects rather than birds. It's got quite flat flowers. Okay. Um, and uh, a cream colour. So I wonder if it's, if it's insect pollinated. Could be. It's a PhD in that for someone. <laughs> okay, fantastic. All right. So, um, yes, back to my perennials. Back to, your plants. back to my heat tolerant perennials. So, that was uh, what have we looked at? We've looked at the Californian fuchsia, the Tsaushneria, and that one's called uh, Ed Carmen. Uh, just, just tell us before we leave that one. Yeah, sure. Uh, how big? How does it does it bush up? Okay, yeah, it's actually a suckering perennial, so it suckers okay. to form a little patch. So bear yep. that in mind when you when you plant it. It's it's pretty frisky, but not not rampant. So where I've got this one planted, it's I've kind of contained it with lawn on one side, or actually just the nature strip on one side. Yep. So any suckers that come up there get mown off, and on the other side, it's got quite dense shrubs, um, and so it, it won't sucker in the shade of those shrubs. So it's that's how I keep it in place. Okay. Um, but there are a couple of different varieties, and the tallest ones are about hip high, and the shortest ones are about ankle high. Okay. Um, so there's a range of heights there, but all all come with this same shade of orange-red flower. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier that that is to attract hummingbirds. Hummingbirds love this co- colour. And so if you look up and down the length of the Americas, where hummingbirds come from, you see plants that flower in this colour, from southern Chile right to Canada. And that's because hummingbirds migrate from north to south, up and down the Americas every right. year. So um, another plant that uh, I've brought in today, also from the Americas, uh, this is from the western states of the US, from sort of California, New Mexico, and it has also has an orange tubular flower. Yes. And that's Agastarchy orantiaca. And its common name is hummingbird mint. 
Well, there you go. It's a member of the mint family. It's got beautifully perfumed foliage, sort of citronellary, mint, licorice, those kind of smells, mm-hmm. and then an orange tubular flower. And again, I've, I've had you know people say to me, "Oh, yuck! I hate orange." But if you but look, that's more... a really delicate orange. Exactly. And and the growth habit is that it's so light. That's right. Exactly it's, so right. So it's it, it's not an in-your-face no. hot. Colour no. as such. It's no. not standing it's out not like that. It's not tangerine sort of screaming no, vermilion. not at all. It's um, what it is. It's a really pale sort of apricot. But if you look closely as well... The, it's, the, got, it's got dark, exactly dark mauve. Exactly right. Mauve, mauve bracts. Yeah. So it blends really well with purples. Thing. That's exactly. right. Exactly. Beautiful. Yep. So you need to, you know, when you're designing with perennials, um, don't just look at the flower colour. Look at the foliage colour as well. Mm. This has got sage green foliage. And look at all the elements of the plant. So the bracts that these orange flowers come out of, as you say, Pam, are mauve. Yes. So this works beautifully with pinks and purples and, and mauves and colours like that. Because, you know, if you have too many purples in your garden, it can look really leaden and depressing. You put a tiny bit of this apricot orange in and it just brings the whole thing to That's life. That's right. You need a high Highlight. Yep. Yep. So I think that's gorgeous. Gorgeous, isn't it? Yes, beautiful. But yes, as I say, also pollinated by hummingbirds, and so our um, honey eaters love it as well. So I've got eastern spinebills, yellow plumed honey eaters, and um, New Holland honey eaters working these at the moment, which is nice. So my garden's full of birds. Um, How does it stand up to the birds? Um, pretty well. You can see they this one's on a slight angle. <laughs> no, they don't. This one's this one's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you're right. Sometimes, if the wattle birds get on it, it's a different story. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the New Holland. Sometimes is... I'm looking out the window <laughs> watching a bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The new, actually, the wattle birds have been trying to um, pollinate my lily or get the nectar out of my lilies oh. and landing on them and, and breaking all the petals oh, off. Oh gosh, yes. Little buggers. <laughs> so but still, yeah. Oh. And um, just while we're on the subject of the hummingbird mix, yes, the Agastakis, sure. this is another one. This is a hybrid one here called Salmon and Pink because the flowers open salmon, orange, and fade to a sort of bubblegum pink colour. Mm. And um, it's uh, got the same beautiful citronella, lovely uh, anise fragrance. Um, and it has much more dense flower heads, you can see, than the wild species. That's right, yes. Um, because there's a bit of selection and breeding involved there. Fair enough. Um, but they're, they're both fantastic plants for tolerating heat. This one here, the salmon and pink, has got a wider leaf. And um, because of that, it, it actually can look a little bit droopy in, in very hot weather, but it continues to flower just the same. Whereas the, the Arantiaca, the wild species, has got a th- uh, almost thread-like leaf and it's totally impervious to heat. So, um, yeah, so two really good plants there for the perennial garden with a long flowering period that the, hum- the um, honey eaters like. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and are both of these readily available? Yeah, they are actually. Yes, yep. um, they are. Um, they're... Uh, yeah, they are widely available now, which I'm really happy about because five years ago, they were, Agastakis were nowhere. You know, you can hardly find them. And that's now right. they're becoming more common. Yeah, that's good. Mm. What else have I got in my little vase of plants here? Well, you, you mentioned the lily, so let's go to the lily. Mm. Oh, I forgot. Well, actually, oh, speaking yes. of lily, um, <laughs> I, I, I forgot. I have got a third Agastaki or, Agast- or Agastachi. You know, no one's going to correct your pronunciation. Latin's not a widely spoken language anymore. So Agastachi, Agastachi, Agastaki. Uh, and this third one here is called Sweet Lily. 
And it ah. was bred by David Glenn at Lamley Nursery and named after his granddaughter, Lily. Okay. So that's why it's called yes. Sweet Lily. Yes. And it's got bubblegum pink flowers and quite robust. This one's waist high um, and, and makes quite a, a big impact. So I, I love this. It's one of my favourite Oh, perennials. yes. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Doesn't David Glenn do a phenomenal job with, with his breeding? Absolutely, with plant selection and yes. plant introduction. Yes. So he's all, you know, he's an English, Englishman by birth and came with that Englishman's, uh, when he migrated, he had that Englishman's aesthetic, the herbaceous border, you know, all the beautiful herbaceous perennials. But after he moved from the Dandenongs to Ascot near Ballarat, he realised that, you know, he couldn't grow that stuff out, out there because it's so hot. Oh, hot and dry. <laughs> and so now he's been looking to parts of the world with a similar climate to his own, yes. so other Mediterranean mm. climates, hot, uh, dry summer climates. And um, that's why he always has interesting plants. And his garden is just a joy to visit. Yeah. I recommend any of our listeners to, if you get the chance, to go to Ascot and go to Lamley Nursery yeah. and have a wander through his very extensive garden. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's just yeah. stunning. Yeah, it really is lovely. Yes, he does a great mm. job. Yep. At this time of year um, out there, actually, all of the agapanthus are flowering. And that's agapanthus are something that David has done a lot of importation of. And agapanthus get a bit of a bad press in Australia. You know, if they I do. mention the word agapanthus, people say, did you know that's a noxious weed? And I have to calmly say, I think you'll find it's not a noxious weed. If you look on the DPI, Department of Primary Industries website, you'll find that uh, it, you, there's a database and you can look up um, all of the declared weeds in every jurisdiction in Australia. Yep. And there are no agapanthus in, that are declared weeds in any jurisdiction in Australia. None. Whereas there are a couple of species of acacia, our native wattles, yes, Potosporum yes. undulatum. Mm. There are several native plants. Yes. And there are things like sand rocket, which is the rocket you get at the supermarket. You know, you dish out with the tongs yes, into yes, your plastic yes, bag. Yes, yes. That, that's a declared weed in uh, northern Victoria. Spanish lavender. Everyone. Oh, but that's a herb. Yes, it's a herb. It's also a declared weed in northern Victoria. Fennel is a declared weed. Oh, gosh, yes. Okay, so lots of these. It's really interesting because we, we kind of put plants into boxes. We go... That's a herb. That's a vegetable. That's right. And agapanthus is a weed. (laughs) And in fact, the herb and the vegetable are both weeds and the agapanthus Mm. is is not. Yep. So um, there are nine species of agapanthus in nature, all native to southern Africa. And um, uh, this one I've got here is a little, it's a miniature one called Isis. And it's uh, actually a hybrid uh, and it's sterile. So often when you hybridize two plants together, their progeny can't set viable seed. Yep. And we call these mules because exactly like you, when you breed a horse and a donkey, exactly. you get a mule. Yes. And if you, you know, put two mules together, you don't get more mules. No. They're sterile. <laughs> okay. Sterile hybrids. And this agapanthus is a sterile hybrid. So even if it wanted to set seed, it, it can't. Couldn't. Yeah. So I would say to people, try to just don't freak out about agapanthus. Now, I know we're going to get a 100 calls now saying, well, agapanthus is weedy over my back fence. It might be weedy over your back fence, but it's not a declared weed in any jurisdiction in Australia. And it's very easy to check that on the Department of Primary Industries website. Mm. So before you ring in and let me have it, check the DPI website first. Thank you. <laughs> so they're really good plants because they're from Southern Africa. They're from, a, you know, from South Africa. They're from a climate very similar to our own. And uh, the thing I love about them is that they start flowering in February. 
so just like the the um, Zauschneria we looked at before, they flower in that hottest month of the year. Yes. They go through February and March when you, you really want that beautiful colour. That is a very strong colour. It's gorgeous, isn't it? It's and beautiful. look how diminutive. It's so oh. tiny. It's How big would you say that flower head is, Pam? Oh, like goodness Four me. inches across oh, or yes, something? Yes, about Fit in four, the palm yes. of your hand? Yeah, beautiful. And this variety is actually what we call herbaceous. So it dies right back to the ground in winter. Okay. There's no tussock of leaves. Yeah, that's right. These do need, it has to be said, the herbaceous ones do need a little bit of water in summer. Not a huge amount, um, but uh, some. Yes, okay. You know, just once or twice during yep. the course of the summer. Whereas the, uh, the evergreen species like praecox that we all know, um, yep. Acopanthus praecox, you know, are indestructible. So, so that's, that's that. Now, um, Another plant from California uh, is this little penstemon here. Um, and this penstemon, uh, most of the penstemons, the cottage penstemons that we grow, actually come from cloud forests in Mexico. Okay. So they grow at very, very high altitudes where it's all foggy and misty, moisty yes. and stuff. And so, and so, so for that reason, that. yeah, that's right. They get moisture from that. And also because of that, because they're adapted to a cool, misty climate, they grew really well back in English gardens when right. they took them back to England. Right. And, you know, they're okay here, but they, they do need a bit of water. But what a lot of people don't realise is there, there are also desert species of penstemon. And this penstemon is native to the desert in the western states of the US. So this is penstemon um, Catherine de Lamar, Penstemon heterophilus, Catherine de Lamar. And you can see the flowers are sort of two-tone blue and purple. Mm. They actually open electric blue in the morning, like icy electric really? blue. Yeah. Wow. And as the day wears on, by lunchtime, they're purple. Okay. And then by tea time, they're blue again. <laughs> so they heavens. change from blue to purple and back again over the course How of the amazing. day. Yeah. Its main flowering period is spring. Um, but it has a second little flush in autumn, so that's what this is here. And this is not a big, you know, some of those old-fashioned um, penstemons can get quite tall and leggy can, and floppy, but this one's a short, bun-shaped plant. It's very compact and it doesn't need, you know, it doesn't flop and carry on like that, okay. and it needs zero water in our climate. Brilliant mm, plant. Fantastic. It'll grow into gum trees too. Wow. Got to love that. Now that's the... Yeah. <laughs> that's, you've just sold it to everybody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. We are running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So if you'd like to jump on the phones and ask a gardening question this morning, do give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. I do have Simon Rickard in the studio this morning. So uh, that number, 94190155, or to speak to Doug on the outside line, 94198377. While um, I think of it... Uh, we do have um, uh, a vacancy for uh, a volunteer who would like to come in once a month and uh, help us with our phone lines. Now, um, if you'd like to be part of the 3CR Gardening Show team, if you can um, uh, give up one Sunday morning once a month and would like to come in and... Uh, uh, do the phones for us to help out the show. We would love to have you on board as part of the Gardening Show family. Uh, as I say, uh, you would be rostered on uh, one Sunday in the month uh, and uh, you don't need any prior training or anything. We will train you as to how to uh, work the phones, but uh, we do have one vacancy that we need to fill, so... Um, if you're out there and a, at a bit of a loose end on a Sunday morning and like to come in and be a part of, uh, of the show, we'd love to hear from you. Um, 
If you can phone in uh, and leave your name and phone number with Doug on the outside line, that's 94198377. You can have a chat to Doug. He's uh, doing the phones uh, along with Matt this morning, so uh, you could have a chat to Doug about what's involved. Um, leave your name and phone number, and I will get back to you later, and we'll work out a time that you can come in and uh, do some training and be a part of the gardening show too, team. So that number again to have a chat to Doug Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Okay, another plant, and then we've got a call. I think on the way through. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, well, another plant. Gosh, um, we we talked about lilies before. You mentioned the word lily, and I have got this magnificent lily here. Um, called Laverne Freeman, named after an American lily breeder, although it's in the trade now as Miss Fayer. And this is a really interesting new class of lilies called an Orion Pet lily. And oh, Orion okay. Pet is their hybrids of Oriental lilies and trumpet lilies. And That's so they have the, yeah, they have the best, um, features of both of their parents. Okay. And they, they flower in January and February in, uh, our sort of climate. A beautiful perfume. And they're very tough and very easy to grow. So they've got what we call mm. hybrid vigor. You, okay. you know, if you think about, if you think about dogs, think about pedigree dogs like a Labrador, you know, Labradors can get hip dysplasia and dodgy eyelids and, you know, poodles can be demented or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you breed them together and get a Labradoodle, um, they're very robust and yes. extremely healthy, healthier yes. than both their parents. Yes. And that, that's what we call heterosis or hybrid vigor. And that's what these Orion pet lilies have. They're really, really much stronger than both their parents, very adaptable to soil types, very heat tolerant as well. That's interesting. and when you think about it, lilies are succulents. You know, they've got these big succulent leaves. The bulbs are made of big, fleshy, succulent scales. True. So they're actually quite water-wise, um, you know. They, yes. They're very good at storing water. They do need some water over the summer, not none, but um, they're, they're thrifty, let's put it that way. Mm. So um, I really love these Orion pet lilies because I, I just think they're so lush and the flowers are so big. I mean, oh, that's, gosh, it's you know, 20 centimetres across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So do they need steak? Uh, no, they don't, no. Um, it depends a bit on how you, actually I should say it depends on how you grow them. Okay. So I've got this in two spots in my garden and where it's in full sun, they're self-supporting. Okay. And then where I've got them on the western side of my house, where they, they get morning shade and afternoon sun, they're, they're kind of leaning out to, to find the, the sun during the course of the day. Okay. So it depends a little bit on how you grow them. Yep. But in general, these are, these Orion pet lilies are very self-supporting. And um, how tall would that get? Uh, this one's about two metres tall. Okay. But I've got some varieties. I grow a variety called Rabina, which is three metres tall yep. and has about 40 flowers on each bulb. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, when you think about it, you can buy a, a daffodil bulb, you get one flower. You That's buy a tulip right. bulb, you get one flower. That's right. You buy one of these lily bulbs, you can get up to 40 flowers. Not the goodness. first year, about the third year. No, no, year. okay. So the first year, you might get two or three flowers. The yep. next year, you'll get, you know, 15. And the following year, then you wow. can get a lot. Wow. But you do need to feed them, you know. They're hungry. So I feed my lilies in autumn and again in spring. Okay. And um, when I'm planting the, the, the lily bulbs, I plant them very deep, because about a foot deep. 30 centimetres, because lily bulbs have got two kinds of roots. Out of the bottom of the bulb, they have support roots that, that hold the plant in the very tall stem in place. Yeah. But then above the bulb, they develop what are called stem roots. 
and the stem roots are the feeder roots. These are nourishing right. the bulb. Right. So when I plant my lilies, I put the, them a foot or 30 centimetres deep, mm-hmm. and I put a bucket load of compost above the bulb. Okay. And so I know that when, when the, the stem roots grow out, they're into all the good stuff, and that way they pump up the bulb nice and big for next year. Mm. So that's how that's how I get nice big lily plants. Yeah. So there's no need to um, to lift them like like no. lift some other bulbs because they're they're so well established with that whole um, that's right. Root system. What they do do is work their way to the surface. So after five or six years, the bulbs push themselves up to the surface, right. and at that point, then I do lift them, replant the big ones nice and deep, and give the small ones to friends or put them in a yep. new new part of the yep. garden. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how some bulbs do make their way up to the surface? Yeah, yeah. What's the reason? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> You they know, have a mind all their some own. Some bulbs have got what are, oh, so, uh, contractile roots, so they pull themselves down deeper, yes, and other true. bulbs push themselves up. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really, I think it's really intriguing, actually. But anyway, there you go. All right, so I presume some nice friable soil. Yes, yes, they do need good drainage. Yes. So the one thing they hate is wet feet. Yep. That, that'll kill them Rock pretty them quickly. Out. That's right. Um, oriental, true oriental lilies, which are just starting to flower now, they're sort of autumn flowering, um, they need a very acid soil and they're a little bit pernickety. But the Orient pet lilies, their progeny, they'll, they'll adapt to any pH, well, within reason, they'll adapt to normal garden pH soil and um, uh, not nearly as pernickety. Okay, all right. Let's go to our first caller. We have uh, Wendy in Reservoir. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning. How are you? We're well, thank you. Um, yeah, what I'm calling about, I have... Sorry, just checking the echo. I have a, um, a, a lovely crepe myrtle in my backyard... It uh, hasn't been pruned for a while, so it's quite tall, um, and it had beautiful fronds of, of the purple flowers on the end, and then we had that heavy rain. So now the branches, some of them actually dropped almost down to ground level, the ends, uh, because of the weight of the wet flowers, heads, and some of the branches have cracked. Um, so I'm going to need to prune it right back to the wood Mm-hmm. Part, I imagine, after the flowers die off. Yep. yep. Not sure. Yes, yes. Absolutely, you can do that, Wendy. They respond really well to that kind of pruning. So what you can do with a, a crepe myrtle is you can renovate it by pruning it back to any height you like. So if you want to prune back oh. to waist high or chest high, um, and then what it will do is grow new branches from that point. And if you like, oh, wow. you can cut it back every winter to that same point. And that's a technique we call pollarding. So you can pollard your crepe myrtle back to the same point every year and it will grow new branches every year. And because crepe myrtles flower on new growth, on the current year's wood, you'll get flowers every year as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. No worries. You won't hurt it at all. Go crazy. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye. Right. And uh, next up we're going to Miriam in Croydon. Good morning, Miriam. Hello. Um, my question relates to five years. We've had about ten pots sitting on a garden bed for about two years and they've flowered and they're doing okay, but they are sort of um, creating progeny and also the roots have grown through the pots down into the soil of the garden bed. Now, we want to try and get those climbers into a garden bed and sort of properly set up. 
how would we go about that? So is it going to damage them by sort of pulling them up and, and the roots that have got into the soil being damaged? Um, well, of course, they will suffer some root damage from doing that, but it's the only way you're going to be able to move them and put them in another bed. So I honestly wouldn't worry too much, and I think probably now would be a good time to do it, or failing that, uh, maybe wait until early spring, till the end of August or September, something like that. Um, but yes, you, you, you can certainly, uh, do that. Cut the roots off, get them out of their pots and, and move them. The, the way they grow in nature actually is in, um, uh, sort of in the cracks between boulders and, uh, with their roots in really tight, rocky places. So they don't mind being pot bound or they don't ha- mind having their roots in, in, in tight environments. But it sounds like you'll need to slice yeah. off the, the roots to be able to shift them. Yes. Are they better grown in pots? Like, do they like being in the soil or? Either or, actually. They, they grow very well both ways in Melbourne. So you do see them used as, as ground covers under trees in Melbourne and they, they look beautiful. Or you can grow them in, in pots too. But the main thing is that they're in shade because they, they really burn, the foliage burns if you put it in the sun. But, uh, they can grow beautiful and lush in even quite dark shade. Yes, okay, that's great. Well, thanks so much for your help. No worries, Miriam. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Uh, Now, Anna has phoned in and wants you to repeat the name of the uh, the plant that goes from blue to purple and back to blue. Oh, sure. Okay, have you got a pen, Anne? So it's Penstemon, and the variety is called Catherine, like the woman's name, Catherine de la Mar. So Catherine, D-E... And the next words L A, and the next words M A R E, like mare, like a horse. Like, yeah. Catherine de Catherine de Lamar. It's scientific. Well, it, it, it's a variety of um, Penstemon heterophilus. Hetero meaning the same, and um, sorry, different rather, not the same. Homo meaning the same. Hetero meaning different, and phyllis meaning leaf because it has two different leaf forms. So, okay. Penstemon Catherine de Lamar is what you're looking for, and it's the most beautiful icy blue. Mm. Do we know anything about Catherine? I don't. I have, okay. to, have to Google that up, I think, won't we? Yeah. I'm always fascinated when plants are named after, after people. Yes. Because yep. you would think they must have been either a, a, an excellent gardener, a breeder, but there has to be a reason why they've been honoured with a, with a plant well, that, named that's after them. Perfect segue, actually. Because okay. <laughs> Perfect segue, Pan, because I've also brought in today some uh, plants from my food garden. I brought in some pears, and um, uh, two of these pears are uh, named after breeders, uh, commemorate people. Okay. So um, last year I brought in some uh, heritage apples, which I grow in my garden, um, and the apples had a fantastic year last year. I had, you know, just so many apples, but... Like a lot of fruit trees, apples are biennially bear, a lot of apples are biennial bearers. And that means they only have a big crop once every two years. Mm-hmm. And then in the in-between year, they have a light crop or no, no crop at all. And it's the same with pears. Last year, I had no pears. And this year, I'm going to be absolutely swamped. Which is fine because pears actually store really well. You know, I picked these pears off the tree this morning and we, if we tried to eat them now, we'd break our teeth. Yes. You can't eat a pear straight off the tree. 
it needs to be stored and then uh, in the fridge for a couple of weeks and then get it out of the fridge and ripen it on the on the kitchen counter. And that ripening process takes between two and ten days according to the variety and the ambient temperature in your kitchen and so forth. Sure. Um, so, yeah, if you want to grow pears at home, be prepared that you need to store them for a bit and then ripen them indoors. They won't ripen on the tree. But of course, that's that's a great boon, and that that means that's why you can buy really delicious pears even from the supermarket because they they do very well in cold storage. They don't lose any quality in cold storage, and they won't ripen until they get to your house anyway. Right. And they ripen from the inside out. So um, by the time the outside is 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 starting to become yellow and a little bit soft, then the the pears ready to eat. So um, I've got three heirloom varieties of pear here, heritage varieties of pear, um, all from Belgium and France, which was the centre for pear breeding in the 19th century, um, because up until that time, pears were cooking fruit, just like a quince. Okay. You know, you wouldn't dream of eating a quince no. raw. And it was the same with pears. At one, once upon a time, pears were for cooking or for making schnapps. Um, but then in the 19th century, these French and Belgian breeders applied themselves to making a pear that you could eat fresh. And they wanted ones with buttery flesh and so you see this word beret all the time in the names of pears so i've got two here with the, with this beret in their name beret bosque which is a pear people would be familiar with from the supermarket yes um it's a very very long narrow um shaped pear what they call a calabash shaped pear because it's shaped like a gourd and it um is named after a frenchman called bosque who um was a pear breeder and then the other variety i've got here is called beret rd so so the beret part of the name means buttered, like mm-hmm. beurre is butter in French. Buttered because of the beautiful um, buttery texture. And this one's beurret Hardy, and it's named after Jules Alexandre Hardy, who was uh, a gardener at the Jardin de Luxembourg in Paris, oh, which okay. many of our listeners might have been to. Beautiful yes. 18th century Baroque garden in Paris. Yes. Um, he was the gardener there, and this pear is named after him. And anyone who grows roses might know a rose named after his wife called Madame Hardy, ah. a beautiful pure white damask rose, which I also grow at home. So I've got two plants named after the, the Hardys, the Hardys. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, these heirloom pears are the most unprepossessing looking thing in the world. I mean, this beret Hardy, is, it's knobbly. It looks like a spud, doesn't it? It, it like does. A, it does. It looks like a potato. It's knobbly. It's brown. It's covered in what we call russeting, which is this fine, brown, slightly woody uh, textured surface, like it's wearing pantyhose, sort of brown <laughs> pantyhose. Um, this one's got, a, it's mainly a yellow green color with a tiny little red flush where it's been exposed to the sun. But once this has ripened up, I mean, it looks awful now, but once it's ripened up, the flesh is, is sparkling white and just melting, absolutely melts in your mouth, uh, non-gritty. Um, you know, some varieties of pear can be quite gritty. Yes. Um, but, but these ones are, are, are not. So that's the beret bosque and the beret Adi. Now that's a much bigger um, fruit than the bosque. Yes, 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 it is. That's right, Madame. Uh, sorry, beret Adi is very uh, can be quite big and lumpy. Um, this is this is off a young tree. This is its first year fruiting. It's it's a three year old tree, um, and they can actually be half as big as that again. So okay, they can be, wow. they can be quite big. 
So all of my pear trees I grow as uh, in a restricted form called a fan. So people probably know an espalier or yes. a multiple tea cordon where you have a vertical trunk and then horizontal branches issuing at regular intervals. That's what we call a, a multiple tea cordon espalier. But the kind of espalier system I use is called a fan. So I have a little trunk about 40 centimetres tall and the trunk splits like a Y into two branches and then each of those two branches splits again into three or four smaller branches and so the tree ends up being fan shaped it's grown on a trellis so it's a two-dimensional tree and to keep the the tree compact and small i there there are two things you need to do if you want to grow a small pear tree one the and the most important is get it on the right root stock mm. So people probably know that fruit trees are um, propagated by grafting them onto a rootstock and the rootstock can confer particular characteristics on the top of the tree. So most pear trees in Australia are grafted onto what we call a Pyrus caloriana rootstock called D6, D6 caloriana rootstock. Um, and this results in quite a big tree, sort of six or okay. eight metres tall. Yep. Yep. And they can take six or eight years to start fruiting as well. So the old saying is pears for your heirs, right. because they take such a bloody long time to get started <laughs> and start fruiting. But my pear trees are grafted onto a dwarfing rootstock, which for the pears is actually a kind of quince. Right. So it's a quince that came from Angers in France, Angers okay. quince, called quince A. And they're grafted onto the quince rootstock, and this results in a tree that's only two metres tall. So it's perfect for growing as an espalier mm. or growing as a little dwarf tree, what we call a bush tree. Um, they're precocious bearing, so they bear a crop after three years, but they're really slow off the mark initially. That's the only thing. Right. So when you put them in, they don't do anything for, you know, two years, and you think, what's going on? And then in their third year, they start to get going. Okay. <laughs> so you need to be patient with <laughs> yes, them. Yes, yes. So um, if you do want to grow fruit at home, it's really important to try to work out what root stock you've got your tree on. Don't just march down to the nursery and buy a, a fruit tree. You need to make sure it's on an appropriate root stock for the kind of training that you want to do. And in my case, training them as an espalier, mm. as a fan. Mm. Now, you've given me the perfect segue. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. To remind listeners that the Heritage Fruit Tree Festival is on today. <gasps> yes. Because you can, not only can you get your own scion, wood, for grafting, but they also um, sell rootstock. Ah, perfect. And, and they are the perfect experts to go and have a chat about different rootstocks and what you're wanting to do with your heritage fruit tree, which you can Absolutely. purchase from them today, or you can put in an order in or whatever, but also discuss... You know exactly how it's you want to prune it. It's such a great day out. I've been, I've been there before. It's a brilliant day out. Yes. And as you say, they're the experts. So, they really yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, well, although the thing you discover about fruit tree pruning is that everybody has their own opinion and they think everybody else is wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, pruning is a matter of opinion. It's, it's not True. a hard and fast science. And each individual tree has its own idiosyncrasies and you need to prune each individual tree slightly different to its next door neighbour. So, but anyway, um, so I mentioned that there are two techniques I use to keep my, my pear trees small. The first is by having them all grafted onto this quince A rootstock. Quince A rootstock. The second is by doing summer pruning. Because when you prune a, you know, everyone thinks, well, you, in winter, you go out and prune your fruit trees because yep. it's winter. Yep. When you prune in winter, 
um, all of the all of the sap and all of the goodness that the trees made over the year, over the summer, has gone down into the root system of the tree. So when you prune off top growth, the tree wakes up in spring. It's got a hundred percent of its energy stored and it's down got to below. Go up. Exactly, that's <laughs> it's right. Got to shoot up. Exactly. Yes. So you know when you prune in winter, you can end up making your fruit tree bigger than it was the previous that's year. That's right. And so frequently I get people saying to me, "Oh, I wanted to make my apple tree smaller. I made it. I gave it a good I prune." It in size. Yeah. And <laughs> now it's huge. Yes. That's right. Exactly. Whereas if you prune in late summer, now, February, mm. March, in late summer, um, the tree, uh, when you remove all of that, all that leafy growth, you're removing that goodness that would ordinarily go down into the roots and you're restricting the vigor of the tree. And that's what you want to do. You want to hold the vigor of the tree back. You don't want a, a great big branchy tree. You exactly. want a small tree that has lots of pears on it. Exactly. So, so that's what you do. Summer pruning, and that, that's at this time of year. So and go more up. and more gardeners are starting to cotton onto it. Simon. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm sure that's something they could tell you about at the Heritage Fruit Day too. Oh, I'm sure they could. Summer yeah. pruning. Yeah. Go but, and ask. But give listeners a hint as to how they would go about it. Okay. Um, well, it depends on what. Uh, how you've trained your tree, whether it's a bush tree or an espalier or whatever. Um, but basically you're shortening all of the little side growths that, that, uh, got pushed out this summer. So all, if you look along a branch, you'll see it's got lots of side growths that got pushed out over the course of the summer and you want to reduce those to a little stub maybe five centimetres long. And that little stub that you leave will become a fruit spur. So that will become a fruiting growth. Because when you, when you chop off this side growth that might be a metre long, the tree goes, oh, well, that's never going to become a branch. I know, you know, so I won't make that into a branch. I'll make it useful by making it fruitful. Mm. And it changes the hormones in that little stub okay. to become a, a fruiting spur. So, yeah, so it's re- reducing all of that bushy growth that grew, grew in summer down to little stubs, maybe five centimetres mm, long, something mm. like that, five to ten centimetres. That's what you do. Yep. It's that easy. I know the other thing is that, that um, people often have trouble picking what is a fruiting spur and what isn't. Yes. Yeah, that's that really true. That can be quite tricky. That's right. And when you prune your fruit trees, you need to be able to identify the Particularly fruiting Particularly on growth. apples. Yep. You know, that's right. Yeah. So what you're looking for on apples and pears is this little stubby, knobbly um, growth, and that's what a fruiting spur is. That's that'll open up into flowers in spring, and then give you the the fruit in the autumn. Mm. Um, not all fruit trees uh, have the same kind of fruiting growth. So peaches and nectarines grow these little weak side growths. Um, you know, maybe a foot long or 15 inches long, and that's where next year's peaches will be. And then after they fruited once, they won't fruit again. Yes. So you remove them to encourage new ones to grow the following year. So it is you're absolutely right, Pam. When people prune their fruit trees, the first thing you need to do is to be able to identify what kind of growth bears fruit. And don't do what my dad did. My poor old dad. You know, he'd see all these little messy twigs on the side of a, of a fruit tree and, and go, I'll clean it up. Yeah, I'll clean it up. They look terrible. <laughs> and he always cut off the fruit and growth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then our... people ring in and say, you know, my tree hasn't, hasn't yep. fruited. What's wrong with that it? That was my dad. Every year with the plum yep. tree, these yep. things yep. look messy. I'm cutting them off. <laughs> we never had fruit. <laughs> Oh dear. So. Look, I, I, I really think um, there should be more workshops run on, on fruit trees. Absolutely. There is so much to learn. Yes. Um, Growing I'm, fruit's hard. And, and it's hard. You can't really read it in a book. I think no. you need to see it. Hands on, yes. Yourself. Yep. Hands on. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. So I really recommend if, if there are any, any hands on 
um, fruit tree workshops, I recommend listeners Absolutely. to go along, yep. um, whether it be about pruning, whether it be about um, learning the special techniques of espaliering mm. uh, into the training. different shapes yep. and training. There's so much to learn. That's right. Pruning and training are, are related things, but they're well, different. Well, they are, but they're different. That's right. Yes. Training is, you know, when, when you plant a new fruit tree, what you want to do is have a five-year plan for your tree. So you want to have a vision in your head of what you want your tree to look like in five years, mm. how you want it to be trained, and then you begin to prune the tree in order to train that final form, if that mm. makes sense. Yes. So, so the the first pruning cut you will do with any of the restricted forms, so espaliers, fans, bush trees, cordons, the first cut pruning cut you do is about 40 centimetres above the ground, mid-calf height. And it's very difficult for some people to do. If they've gone to the nursery and come home with a bare root tree that's, you know, two metres, six feet long... It's very hard for them to cut off all that top growth and throw it away. But it's very important that you do, people. <laughs> because we, when trees are a bare root, they're grown in the field. And when they're removed from the field to sell, they cut off 80% of the root system. So you buy a tree that's got 100% of its top growth, but only a 20% mm root ball mm. and so that tiny little root ball can't supply the top of the tree with enough nutrients because it's, right. it's proportionally too small mm. so the first thing you need to do is get rid of the top growth to bring the top and the bottom of the tree into proportion mm. and that's the first cut you do and then you start building up your fruit tree step by step year by year for the, for three or four years before you expect any fruit so it's a real investment of time, you know. It time is, and time again is. I see people, they come home with a six-foot-tall tree they bought at the nursery, stick it in, and the tree is basically a zombie. It's neither alive nor dead. It just, you know, puts out leaves every year, but it never does what it's meant to do. Yep. So you need to... You need to sacrifice all that top growth to start from and then grow the branches where you want them to grow over mm. the next three or four years. Build up a structural framework and and you do that in winter because you want that strong vegetative growth that you get from winter pruning. And then after four years, you click over to summer pruning because then you want to keep your tree at the size you've got it. So yeah, you're right. There's a lot to learn. Do go yes. to workshops. Make lots of mistakes. It doesn't mean you won't hurt anything. Yep. But um, be patient. If people are saying to themselves, that's exactly what I did, I didn't prune it, now I've got this great long, it's really achieving nothing, is it too late if it's already, you know, three or four years old? It's not too late, but it can take a few years to rectify the situation. So frequently I meet people who've um, uh, moved to a new house, they've got an old apple tree, they've tried to reduce the size by giving it a haircut in winter, and they've ended up with a tree that's half as big again the yep, following summer. Yep. And so then what you need to do is summer prune that tree over the, over two or three years to get it back to a smaller size. Yep. So, and I will often say to people, look, if I were you, I w we don't know what variety this apple is. We don't know if it's good for eating. What I would do is dig the whole thing out, throw it away, start with a fresh apple tree, which will take three or four years to get to where we want it, to start cropping. Or we can try to renovate this one, which will also take two, three, four years yes. to get it back to size. Yes. And we still don't know what the variety is. Yes. So, and pe people then have to make that call about whether they want the tree as a kind of, you know, part of the history of the garden or as an ornamental feature, or if they want to just start afresh, mm. you know, and train a, a tree from day one, which mm. was always my advice. People, so. get, people get very attached. Yes, yeah, they do. They're, they're very loath to, to suddenly ditch what looks like a healthy tree. Absolutely. I, but I, I think it's a, a mistake to, if you've, um, uh, what's the word, acquired an, an old garden 
to live with the um, mistakes of other people's bad judgments. <laughs> don't don't feel obliged to live with other people's mistakes. Oh dear. Yeah, be brave. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay, we have a few more callers. Uh, let me see. First up, we'll go to uh, Lois in Mitcham. Good morning, Lois. Oh, good morning, Pam. How are you? We're well, Another thank you. interesting show. Oh, thank you. Lovely to hear the things that Simon has been talking about. Good. Um, now, what I wanted to ask him, with um, the branch pruning that he's been talking about, what do you do about those type of fruit trees that tend to have the fruit on the tips of their branches? Yes, excellent Just question, like Lois. a quince. Yep, that, that's right. Excellent question, um, Lois. With, with, so apples and pears come in two varieties. Yeah. The majority of them are what we call spur bearers, and they bear yeah. the little fruiting spurs along the lengths of their branches. But there mm-hmm. are a minority of them, which are what we call tip bearers. And the right. most famous one of those is an English cooking apple called the Bramley seedling. So that's a oh, tip yes. bearer. And what they do is they put out whippy growths in summer and they will only flower at the tips of those whippy growths. So you, you can't prune them in the same way as I described before, which is better suited to spur bearers. Um, yes. You need to leave, uh, leave some of those whippy growths on because that's where you'll get the fruit next year. Now, in the case of quinces, quinces have a bit each way. So when a new whippy branch comes out, you know, a new water shoot on a quince, they're very prone to putting out these water shoots, it will bear fruit at its tip the following year, but under Uh the weight of those quinces, the branch will flop down. Because, you know, quinces have this very floppy sort of habit. And once they flop down, Sounds then like spurs... <laughs> we all know that feeling, don't we, Lois? <laughs> once they've flopped over, then they will develop spurs along their whole length and you'll get quinces along the whole length of them. Is so, in other no. words, so if you're wondering about how to prune a quince... Um, as little as possible is, is probably the idea. You want to keep yes. the centre of it open because they can become quite congested. So if there's too much growth going on in the centre of the tree, then remove some of that to open it up. And then some of those long whippy growths that it's produced this summer, bend those over yourself. Bend them over and tie them to the uh-huh. trunk of the tree so that they're arched over because then they right. will develop spurs along their length next summer and you'll have fruit along the whole length of them. Does that make right, sense? Yes. yes, it certainly does. Now, I've been uh, wondering about it because I've got a couple of um, quince trees and, um, you know, I've been looking forward and forward. And I do, I have tipped, um, tipped some of the long branches, but I haven't actually bent them over and I did mm-hmm. wonder about that sort of thing yep, um, because I really get very few fruit on quince. Oh, that's annoying. Yes, it is, especially when you like to make quince jelly and um, quince cheese and all of that. Oh, those. yum. And they are self-fertile, well, partially self-fertile, so even if you only yeah. have one quince tree, you should get a crop. But I think tipping mm. the branches is, is a good idea. I think that's because um, that removes that apical bud which has the hormone that tells the rest of the branch to not flower. Get on with it. Exactly get on with it and so now if you try um, bending them over and tying them into the trunk um, so just arch them over then um, next spring you should get some blossom. 
Right. Now, another question, please, Certainly. about the pears. Yes. Um, now, we have a grafted pear tree. Yes. I think, well, it has a Nashi, and I'm pretty sure it has a Williams uh-huh. and a Burr. Yes, yep. Now, as to fruiting, we get very few fruit on there, though the pear tree hasn't grown uh, prolifically, mm-hmm. and... Um, I'm just wondering now, all of those, do they have a varied period? Like, do they fruit every year, the nashi or the burr? What? I mean, when I was a child in the country, I remember a very big old uh, pear tree just up the hill sort of thing, mm. and um, it had tons of the brown, mm. lovely, crunchy fruit on mm-hmm. it. And um, I'm just wondering... Mm. What is the cycle? Yes, um, the nashis generally bear every year. They're they're pretty um, even bearing, but mm-hmm. I suspect the two European food? pears. Sorry, yes, the two European pears are, are probably um, a biennial bearing. So yes, they're yes, probably going right. to give you a crop every second year. But one thing to watch, Lois, with the multi-grafted fruit trees is um, yes. they're often not matched for vigor. And what that means yes. is that the three signs can grow at very different rates. So yes, in the case yes. of your tree, the nashi is going to be big and buffy and vigorous, and the two European that, I pears... I wouldn't mind that any rate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, so just bear in mind when you're pruning, um, the classic yes. mistake people make is, oh, the nashi part's too big, I'll prune it really hard. And as we've discussed, mm-hmm. when you prune them hard in winter, it makes them bigger. So maybe don't yes. prune the nashi portion at all and prune the pear... Uh, the pear portions of the tree quite hard to try to push out some strong growth um, so that you well, uh, yes we haven't been actually particularly pruning uh, because of the uh, smallness so to speak oh, okay. of the tree yep. and um, so we've just really left them what sort of food in particular may help uh, the tree to grow and as I said I don't mind if I love the nasties anyway yeah, I like all pears, really. Um, well, it's a really good question, actually. Pears do like a lot of food, um, and high-nitrogen oh. food will help kick them along in the first few years. It's a really good question. Oh, good. Otherwise, they can sit there for ages, especially if they're on a dwarfing rootstock. So right. um, high-nitrogen right. food, you know, blood and bone, um, that sort of thing in uh, uh, late winter, early spring, and that should push mm-hmm. them along next year. Oh, that's sounds very good and can I just quickly pop in another thing years ago uh, we actually lived behind a school and years ago that used to be an orchard and um, we've been in our property for 50 odd years now and I got from this nursery, uh, from this um, apple orchard mm-hmm. um, a little um apple tree that had been left behind because they then built the school on it. Now, that apple tree must be about 40 years old, mm-hmm. I reckon. And um, all it does, it, 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 I planted it and it didn't really grow. And then it came up and now we have um, an arched lot of branches that would be possibly six or more feet long. They just arch over, and I've always thought that would make a good espalier. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know what type of apple it 
was in the first place. I would have thought it was a Granny Smith to tell the truth. But um, the same thing apply with the food maybe to get fruit bearers or what? Um, well, if it's got branches that are six feet long, then it's already a, a great size for a home garden. Mm. I wouldn't want to make it any mm. bigger. Um, no. To encourage it to fruit, I'd use f- foods that are high in potassium. So the the, right. um, the element potassium encourages uh, plants to flower and fruit. So um, things like tomato food have that in. You can use sulphate of yes, potash yes. to supply sulphate of potash. And it is quite important because Australian soils are very depleted in potash. So um, yes, you do need to yes. give them something with p- potassium or potash in it if you want them to, to, to fruit. So try that. Try yes. giving them a, a Yes, food. I haven't even really seen much in the way of flowers on this. Okay. Um, it might be. Tree, was, was the tree a, a seedling or was it um, a well, grown-up tree? I, I don't. I wouldn't have thought. So. I thought that it actually was planted in a bit of a row and been neglected or oh, whatever. Okay. It might be that it's just an old rootstock and it's completely mm. inedible anyway. Mm, that's true too. But mm. anyway, be interesting to try spelling. Absolutely. Thanks, Lois. Lovely. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Pam. Okay then. Bye. Take care, bye. Uh, now, just a reminder that we do still have that free double pass for next weekend to go and have a look at Claremont Open Garden, which is opening for uh, Open Gardens Victoria. It's an 1850s historic house and garden. Uh, it is down at uh, in Newtown uh, at Geelong. Uh, if you'd like to get that free double pass... Uh, to go and visit Claremont uh, Open Garden, uh, do give Matt a call now on 94190155 and that free double pass can be yours. It will be posted out to you during the week. So uh, give, uh, give Matt a call on 94190155. We'll go uh, next to... Uh, let me see, to Pat, who's in Elwood. Good morning, Pat. Oh, hello. Thanks for waiting. Yes. Uh, oh, I picked up a, uh, a blue spruce. Can you hear me? Yes, yes we Go can, ahead. Pat. Oh, it's, it's echoing. Um, I picked up a blue spruce off the street about three years ago. I think it was an ex-Christmas tree. Uh-huh. And dragged it home. Yes. And uh, I put it in the hugest pot that I could possibly get. Mm. It was a compost bin pot. It was an absolute giant of a thing. But I've noticed it's grown and it's over six feet high now. Uh-huh. I was wondering, you said some are pruning to make them stop growing. Uh, do you think if I pruned this blue spruce, I could uh, manage to uh, discourage it. Well, Pat, um, when I talked about summer pruning to make trees smaller, that only applies to deciduous fruit trees. So that's only apples, pears, you know, plums, that sort of thing, Not, not for spruces. Um, and in fact, you can really disfigure spruces if you if you mm. prune them, um, mm. because you you do want them to have that lovely symmetrical rocket ship shape. And mm. uh, if you start uh, pruning them, it can really uh, disfigure them. Uh, but the fact that you've got it in a big pot should keep it uh, small, because having their roots restricted will um, help to keep the tree small. 
like they do with oh, bonsai. If you, you know, bonsai are, are grown in small pots, and the root yeah. restriction is one of the things that keeps or well, helps to keep the tree small. So if it's not happy, mm-hmm. it'll just jump out of the pot. <laughs> no, it'll be happy in the pot. You'll just need to repot it every few years. So every two or three years, get it out, um, remove um, you know a third or a half of the compost around the root system, put it back in its pot with fresh potting mix, and uh, mm. it should live in there happily for quite a while. Thank you. That's all right. Thanks for waiting, Pat. Okay. Bye. Bye. Ah, a couple of uh, queries there for you, Simon. Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, um, Phil from Blackwood rang. Uh, I mentioned a plant with polis in the name. like to name, know the full name of the plant. Polis, what was that? Let's have a look. Oh, Polaris, I, Polaris, I reckon. Polaris, yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, Phil, that is um, Verbena Rigida. Verbena, V-E-R-B-E. N-A, verbena, rigida, like rigid with an A on the end. And the cultivar, the selection with the very pale mauve flowers is called polaris, like polar with I-S on the end, polaris. And uh, uh, yeah, that's available from a couple of different nurseries mail order. Um, Yes, so verbena, rigida, polaris. And also Simon from the Mornington Peninsula phoned, uh, I believe. Um, I like your name, Simon. Mornington Peninsula Shire website has Agapanthus registered as a weed. Yes, it's it's considered a local weed in local areas, but it's not a declared weed in any jurisdiction in Australia. So if you have a look on the DPI website and Google Agapanthus, uh, not Google, but search for Agapanthus, um, you'll see that it's not a declared weed in any state of Australia. So it, it's often considered a local weed in places like Mornington. Peninsula Shire, which means it's a very minor uh, weed, but it's not considered a weed of national significance for which there's a lot of um, uh, supporting evidence. So thank you for that, Simon. Um, I used to live on the Mornington Peninsula too. It's a great place to live. You certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> In a rather rather beautiful Rather setting. salubrious surroundings. <laughs> yes, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Our good friend Pam from Kyntons um, phoned in with a message on the outside line. When are um, almonds ready to pick? When are almonds ready to pick? Well, they are ready to pick when the fruit splits. So almonds grow. Almonds are very closely re- related to peaches, and they the nut grows inside a, a fruit, a bit like a peach, but uh, quite leathery. You can't eat the flesh; it's very leathery. And when that leathery flesh splits to reveal the seed. That's when they're ready to go. And you need to make sure you net them or the cockatoos will get oh, them yes. all first. They'll yep. be in quick <laughs> smart. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, have we covered everything you brought in? We no, haven't. I, well, I, I've a, got loads all. more plants. Well, let's you've... go. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, one of my favourite perennials, I would have to say, is this thing here called Russian sage which is neither Russian nor a sage. <laughs> there you it's go. Perovskia, Perovskia, and it's uh, from Afghanistan and Central Asia, places like that. I guess they used to be part of the USSR. It, um, it looks nothing in a photograph. Uh, it's got really small, um, very dark blue flowers um, on silver-grey stems with silver-grey foliage. 
Um, and it doesn't show up in a photo at all, but in real life, it absolutely glows and throbs. It looks like um, lavender from a distance. It, it it's does. that sort of purple yeah. haze kind of thing going on. And even after the little dark blue flowers are finished, the silver stems stay upright and look really beautiful, very, very structural. This plant will grow in difficult soils, uh, in very heavy clay. It will grow in salty soils, which is very useful. Um, and it's very, very heat tolerant. Uh, I grew up in Canberra. I used to have this planted in my nature strip and all my friends used to park on top of it and it uh-huh. never, never batted an eyelid. So that's the Russian sage, Perovskia atroplicifolia. Really, really super duper plant. Has that leaf got a perfume? I'm picking up it a does. perfume and you've just been rubbing your hand yeah, on yeah. the stem. Yeah, it's got a kind of antiseptic. I'm really picking that up. Eucalyptus-y, yeah, camphory. As soon as you picked it up, that wafted across to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a kind Amazing. of camphory smell. And yeah. a lot of dry climate, Mediterranean, Mediterranean climate plants do have volatile oils in their foliage because it's part of the way that they cool themselves down in hot weather. You know, the, the oils evaporate at uh, a lower temperature than water. So it's like the plants kind of sweat oil in, you know, to keep themselves cool. And a lot of our culinary herbs um, are from Mediterranean dry climates. Oregano from Greece, you know, uh, lavender and, and rosemary from, mm. from southern France and so forth. Yes. Okay. You've got a fan, Simon. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Sue from Lilydale is loving the show, is learning a lot. She'd like to hear your bio of your career. Oh, well, Sue, the easiest thing to do is look up my website. Just Google me. You can find me on website and there's a a very long and boring bio (laughs) there. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But that's great that that, uh, listeners are learning. It's fair, yeah. There we go. Okay, we'll go to... uh, No, we won't. It doesn't seem to be there for the moment. Um, Okay. Uh, we might see if we can get Heather back. Uh, Heather in Blackburn, if you'd like to phone back in. Um, Heather from Blackburn, we've lost your call. Can yeah, you call us back, but we please? Do know, we do know what she was ringing about. Passion, about fruit. passion fruit. vine. Growing on its own roots, as opposed to grafted, I wonder. Um, yeah, or uh, or passion fruit. The usually... underneath graft has taken over, which yes. is what happens with passion fruit so often. So often, that's right. People think, "Wow, my passion fruit plant's really taking off," but um, it, it can just the root stock. Um, yeah, um, I just can't quite see the full um, question. So um, yes, Matt so I've got a couple of other perennials to... here I can talk about. Yeah, yeah, um, let's do that, and then we'll try and get back to uh, to Heather. Two of the plants I brought are. Clematis or clematis comes from a Greek word, clema, meaning a, a tendril. And clematis, uh, I used to grow these when I lived in Canberra and they grew really well. But when I moved to Victoria, I convinced myself that, like, you know, I must have just given them way too much water. I must have been too splashing around the water too much. Right. But I tried a couple again this year because I thought, well, Clematis viticella comes from Italy, you know, southern Europe, Mediterranean climate. Clematis texensis comes from... Um, uh, Texas in the United States, very hot and dry as well. I thought, oh, maybe I'll give them another go. And I did. And blow me down, they have been the best things this summer. There they, you go. So heat tolerant, you know. So don't water them too much. Yeah, well, this, this clematis, I mean, you know, like with the lilies, you need to do really good soil preparation. Yeah. Because they, these have got big root systems, uh, big thick roots like boot laces. And so I, I dug big holes with lots of compost, lots of manure. Um, I really prepared the site well. But these clematis have um, gone over summer uh, withstanding the heat 
and really needing very little water. So this one here I've got is called Perle d'Azur, and you can see it's got beautiful um, sort of blue mauve flowers. Beautiful colour again, gorgeous. And um, I uh, gave that three uh, watering cans full of water over that six-week period with all the heat waves one after the other back in December. So, and it's survived, it looks lovely. Yeah. Yeah, you can be surprised sometimes. Okay. And again, do you have to keep its roots cool? Yes, roots cool. Yeah. So the lilies and the clematis both like to have cool roots. And with the clematis, I've, what I've done is grow it on the south side of my house where the roots are on the cool southern side yep. with a gravel mulch over them. Actually, it's just my driveway. So gravel mulch to keep them cool. And then the plant can get its head up into the sun. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Good. Okay, well, I've got the full question for Heather in Blackburn. Oh, great. Um, she has a passion fruit. Yes. It's four years old. It's on its own rootstock, mm-hmm. right? Um, it flowered for the first time, but no fruit. Wants to know. Oh, it's on its own roots. Okay, that's quite unusual. It is very unusual, isn't it? Um, I don't know, Heather. I, I just don't know. Sorry. I mean, Some... normally they're always sold grafted. Yes, yeah, that's right. I wonder. I wonder if. Oh no! So you reckon it's on it, on its own roots? I find that really mm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. They're, normally they're sold grafted onto a, um, you know, a, a rootstock that's very, very vigorous and has yellow fruits that are empty. There are no seeds in them at all. Um, but if you've got something like a Nelly Kelly or you know your classic eating passion fruit, it's unusual to have it on its own roots. The only thing I can suggest is that it's lacking potassium, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the element responsible for making plants flower and set fruit. So try adding some potash, potassium, to your soil, and you can do that in the form of wood ash from your fire. Um, if, if you have a fire, you probably don't in Blackburn. Um, sulfate of potash is the, the easiest way to add it. So you can mix that with water and then water that into the roots. And if the plant has sufficient potash, it will help it to flower and set fruit. That's the only thing I can think of. I can only think that maybe it's, it's just been a, a seedling of some sort. Yeah. In which case it may never fruit. Yes, that's true. Um, you know, and it may not be a named variety. That's yes. what I'm thinking. Yeah, it might be true. a rogue seedling. Yes, yep. It's someone stuck in a pot yeah, and yep. um, it's gone from there. But I don't, if that's the case, I would say you're going to be really pushing yeah, luck that's to, right. to get it. I mean, the other thing that, that they sometimes suffer from in Melbourne is just um, lack of summer heat. But that hasn't been a problem this year. We've had no, that's so right. much heat. Yes. So... Yeah, sorry, Heather, I can't help you more than that. No, no, that's. I, I'd be interested to know if it was a named variety. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway. Um, Sonia Rang, loving the show, and all Simon's information and his delivery. There we go, Simon. Thank you, and Sonia. And Audrey's rung. Uh, great show. Really appreciate Simon uh, repeating plant names and all his knowledge. Oh, so that's very kind. Thank we've you. Got to, we've got to somehow stop you from, from keeping... Doing tours overseas and <laughs> getting involved with all your music. <laughs> we're very, it's very hard. We're, we're really privileged every time I can finally get Simon into the studio. But thank you, Pam. we love That's it when you can make it. Thank it's you. Great. <laughs> okay. Um, goodness me. Look at the time. We have to go. A quick reminder that uh, next week is International Women's Day. We won't be doing a show as such, but there will be a special International Women's Day show featuring women in horticulture. Uh, there will be a discussion on what to do in the garden uh, this month. 
as we head toward them. Uh, there'll be community garden events and more tips and tricks for uh, pickling. And between 8 and 9, you can call in with gardening questions. Then uh, alternative news will be going for a half an hour instead of their normal a uh, quarter of an hour. So they will be going, their show will start at 9, running through until 9.30. So tune in next week for a very special International Women's Day show. And uh, the regular team, including, including myself, will be back the following Sunday, back to normal as usual. A huge thank you to Matt and uh, Doug, who've been handling all the questions. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.